0: All right, dads, it is time for the first Frogman Friday edition of First Class Fatherhood in 2020, and it is a banger. Former Navy SEAL Micah Fink joins me on the show today, and like so many others, Micah was inspired to get involved after the 9-11 attacks, and for him... That meant serving with the world's most elite special operations unit. Micah earned a number of awards during his time with the SEAL teams, including the Bronze Star. He is currently living in Montana, where he joined me on a video call for today's episode. So if you're interested in watching today's interview, please visit and subscribe to my new YouTube channel. The link is in the description of today's podcast episode. Micah Fink will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And I'll tell you what, guys, although I am closing in on my 50th Navy SEAL interview, which is really hard to believe, the impact and honor of speaking with these warriors is never lost on me. I am fully aware of the freedoms that we have in the United States, and I understand that they come at a very high price for so many families, especially those in the Special Forces community. Despite all of the huff and puff on social media where everybody seems to just talk and nobody listens, there has never been a better time to be an American than right now. And all politics aside, I am getting so tired of hearing Americans talking shit about America. If you think it's so bad, you should see what it looks like from the back of the line of people that are dying to come here. So it has never lost on me just how blessed I am to be an American and how much blood has been spilled to keep Americans safe. My interviews with our nation's heroes are by far my favorite ones to do. And if you scroll through the archives of my podcast here, you'll see my interviews with military legends such as Black Hawk Down, Night Stalker pilot Mike Durant, vietnam navy seal medal of honor recipient michael thornton and so many others and my celebration of military dads continues today as always please help me spread the word about this podcast with every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list let them know about the show that is here celebrating fatherhood and family life fatherhood rocks family values rule and every day is father's day right here with me and i'm going to be right back with Foreman navy seal micah fink i'm alec lace and you're listening to first class fatherhood Hey, dads, are you looking to boost your energy level? Strikeforce Energy has got you covered. With a Strike Force Energy packet, you can turn any beverage into an energy drink. Their original energy packets contain no sugar, no calories, just an explosion of energy and flavor added to any beverage. Strikeforce Energy is veteran-owned, and all their products are made right here in the United States. Co-founded by Navy SEAL, Sean Strike Strikeforce Energy blows away the energy drink competition. Right now, first-class fatherhood listeners can save... off their purchase by visiting strikeforceenergy.com and using the promo code FATHERHOOD. Strikeforce Energy turns any beverage into an energy drink. Get yours today. Strikeforceenergy.com, promo code FATHERHOOD. All right, joining me now, First Class Father, Micah Fink. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood.
1: Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's start it right here. How many kids
0: do you have and how old are they?
1: I got four kids, four, six, eight, and thirteen years old. Wow! All right, awesome. What
0: type of uh, sports or activities are the older ones into?
1: So my oldest daughter does lacrosse and swimming. Uh, Nora uh, pretty much just rips the heads off dolls and destroys the bathroom with toothpaste. Uh, My son Micah does uh, motocross, so he's got a couple dirt bikes, and uh, I started last year doing that and. Um my daughter Eva is a cowgirl so she does uh barrel racing which uh for those of you on the east coast is uh racing around three barrels as fast as you can and then um wasting all your followers money on horses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Do, do you ever get involved in uh, in coaching with the lacrosse or the swim team or anything like that or you like to step away from that and enjoy it from the side?
1: You know, I kind of enjoy it from the side I guess uh for me you know it's like one thing that's really helped me develop in my, in my fatherhoodness, if I'm going to coin that word, um, is, is, you know, my time that I've spent working with horses and breaking horses and, and realizing like, you know, for me, it's a lot better to put them in a situation and then allow it to be their own free choice and, you know, use pressure and, 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 and use other aspects you know of leadership to help them become the best version of themselves without too much influence. And, uh, you know, so that's 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 being as firm as necessary and and supporting them there where they need it. But but making sure that whatever they're doing is something that they're internally motivated by. And it's not some kind of wish of my own that I'm you know trying to fulfill them. You know, I, you know I've done the Ironman I'm a Navy SEAL accomplished, you know, swimmer. I love swimming, I'm, I'm, you know, it, but at the same time, I'm going to be there when necessary. But I'm not going to be overbearing when it comes to horses. uh you know, I'm, I'm, they're definitely a little bit different. Uh, It's a different kind of sport and they can be dangerous. Uh, And so I'm there in a lot more aspects, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm there when I need to be, but the individual, meaning my children has to show the desire to do it without me forcing them to, Uh, because so many of my friends, like uh, you know, and I, I didn't really play any sports, Uh, you know, I was a boxer. And so I, you know, matter of fact, my most famous claim of claim to fame as I was a sparring partner for the former heavyweight champ of the world, Ray Mercer. Um, and he hit me so hard that um, <clears throat> I decided I didn't want to go any further. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just, I don't want to be that individual that forces so much because they get in this day and age, so many of my friends, I see them just driving their kids, driving their kids, driving their kids, and they lose the passion and it becomes a job and we're placing them into their first full-time job, you know, before they're even out of diapers. So um, for me, I, I, I support them where they want to go, but they got to do the work. You know, my kids got to wake up in the morning. They got to feed horses in the horses when it's 30 below zero. You know, he's got to work on the dirt bike. He's got to clean it. He's got to wash. It, he's got to take care of his gear. He's got to do everything himself. Um, and I'm not going to be overbearing, but I'm always there to support. That's kind of my approach.
0: Yeah, very, very well said, Mike. And you touched on it a little bit there. But if you could, just take a minute here just to hit my listeners with a little bit more about your background and what you do.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, originally from uh, upstate New York, um, from outside the Albany area, I grew up in the Catskill Mountains, uh, real small town kid, uh, just outside a place, just outside of Catskill, New York. And I was telephone pole lineman, and I was uh, you know, at, at the World Trade Centers on 9-11. I was actually on a telephone pole working in Queens, New York at the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was there, I, I went into New York City, I was there when all the towers fell, not the World Trade Centers, but when Tower Seven fell, and uh, it changed my life. I ended up joining the military. I, you know, didn't come from a big military family. I didn't run around playing soldier, like, you know, harpooning uh, burlap sacks with pillows in them or anything and marching around. Uh, but that moment changed my life. I wanted to, I wanted to have a life of service. So, you know, I joined up, ended up becoming a Navy SEAL, which I had no idea what they even were, uh, which is kind of funny because I was trying to join the Army. And I got pulled out of line out of all the people because nobody wanted to join the Navy because, you know, I mean come on. And, uh, so this guy showed me a video. I joined up, you know, became a a SEAL, graduated 13 original guys out of my class. And, uh, you know, that led me into my special operations career where, uh, you know, I was in the SEAL teams, both active and reserves, did some deployments, got out, ended up going over as a CIA contractor where I spent another five years, um, rounded out both those careers with 13 deployments. Um, and, uh, as a matter of fact, I just exited the reserves, um, on December 27th. So yeah, uh, it's been a, been a really, really long journey. It's been tough having a family. Uh, I've been with my wife for 13 years now and, uh, it's, it's, it's been hard. I, I, there's no doubt about it. Fatherhood's hard. Military's hard. Um, put those things together and, uh, you better buckle in.
0: Yeah. Incredible career, Mike. And thank you so much for your service. And about how old were you then when you did become a dad and how did becoming a father kind of change your perspective on life?
1: Well, I think it's kind of interesting. A lot of guys have this, like, watershed moment where they have kids. And my memory of having Isabella, um, who's just absolutely my heart and soul, I love this kid, uh, was, like, I I left training. I was going through the 18 Delta Special Operations Medical School. I get a call that, you know, she's going into labor. And uh, so – I had to leave class, so I went over, I left class, you know, it was everyone's in, I'm in full, you know, fatigues, you know, like I'm over there in the military hospital, everyone's in there, like, you know, can, can the students watch, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know. So we, we're in there, she gets born, and then I had to go back to class. So I, I kind of went back to class, you're not allowed to miss any days, um, it's an extremely hard course, and the implications of, you know, failure are terrible, uh, dismal at that point in your career, so... Um, yeah, it was a really, really hard thing for me. And then once I left that school, I showed up at my team and began working up for deployment. And, you know, that was a I never really would say that in the beginning I learned how to be a father. I was gone around eight months out of the year. And so, you know, those first early years of her life, I, I mean, I see in pictures, but I wasn't there. Matter of fact, I remember I bought her a dog. I was in Iraq and watching her on like a real everyone's trying to watch their family so the internet's horrible over there you know, we'd gotten mortared the night before so everyone's like tired because you had to run to the bunkers and you know that whole ordeal and so um i'm watching her open up this dog that i got her charlie who died but anyway not from being in the box <laughs> but he uh charlie's in this thing and i remember sitting there in iraq and 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 watching this thing move around and this little girl is trying to open up this box and look inside and there's like this little dog and then the internet went down and uh, you know for me when I left um, you know in 2014 when I um, you know finally you know hung up the guns you know per se um, is when I really started being the type of father that I always imagined that I would be. Um, and that was a really, that was a really hard journey for me, you know, because you come home, you're so absorbed in your career. You come home, you're home for short periods of time, your wife's doing everything. And then you roll in like, man, why are the towels folded that way? You know, they're like, excuse me? Like, you know, like, why, why are they talking at the table, you know, or whatever. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of been my Genesis. And, uh, Um, you know, today the relationship I have with my children is I just couldn't imagine it being any better Uh, and I've never been happier. And I always tell people that the greatest thing that I've ever done in my life is have children. Um, I, I just, people wait so long. Uh, you know, a matter of fact, I just, I know a lot of people that I meet, you know, they're in their late forties. They want to have kids because now they have the car. Now they have this, now they have all the things and now they're stable and they can't have them. And um children add more value to you than any dollar amount you could ever have in your in your checking account. Um, and they really are a they're like wild mustangs. You get them, they haven't really been handled. They don't really know anything. so anything you teach them is either gonna leave a good imprint or a bad imprint. So you know it's it's your it's your game to play, and you can take all your life lessons and begin to apply them to an individual that that loves you and wants to learn everything you have to teach them. And to me, I would give up everything. I've, I I just wouldn't trade being a follower for anything in the world. Nothing. I'd give up everything. Um, but, you know, I would just I was just the most valuable thing to me.
0: Yeah, I'm right there with you. And it, it seems kind of crazy, like the way our society puts the value more on other things. Like where years ago uh, we had much bigger families that lived in smaller houses. And today we have people that live in bigger houses and have smaller families. So we've kind of gotten the priorities skewed somewhere along the line here and especially like i was saying to you a little bit before we started the interview. like when i tell people i have four kids they look at me like with a double take like i got four heads do you get that kind of reaction too from some people you tell them hey i got four kids do you get that
1: well out here in montana i kind of like i got four laborers uh <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> i just you know we live on a we got a little 40 acre uh place out here and um you know, the kids, uh, you know, the house is heated with two giant wood stoves, you know, it's so we got, you know, eight horse stalls, uh, we got, you know, all kinds of animals and, uh you know, they are little laborers. Um, so they actually come in handy. (laughs) They really do. And I think that's why people used to have so many kids because back when, you know, you're planting cabbage during the Western expansion, you know, if you didn't have any laborers, you know, you had to start, you had to start growing them organically with ma. Um, (laughs) but I think that what happens is that people become, um, they almost like sometimes, like, especially when I travel back East, um, people seem to kind of look down on that a little bit, you know, because they're so involved in their career. And and this is the problem is that the idea that things bring you happiness is really the overarching modus operandi of humanity. Like like the game is get as much stuff as you can and then, you know, save up enough money so that you can die in comfort. I mean, mean, things is it, it's a it's a it's a trap. Like people keep pursuing things and keep pursuing jobs and keep pursuing careers or they have kids and then they have the nanny raise the kids and they have nothing to do with the kid and then the kids like, you know, totally going bonkers and they don't understand why and they wish they never had them when they've 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 never given their time to that child because they're pursuing things which they think in the end is going to bring them happiness. But it's in a, it's an empty lifestyle. Uh, uh we the house we just recently bought um the lady died and it was filled with things, stuff. Like, so the family left everything in there. And so I went, we got a big dumpster out there. And a lot of this stuff was like all these like weird knickknacks. And, like, and I was out there at a real low point because I was so sick and tired of like cleaning stuff out of this house. And I look at one of the things that has a price tag on it. It's like 35 bucks. I was like, I threw in the dumpster, 8 bucks, 16 They all had these little plastic tags. I was like throwing it out. And I started thinking, I wonder if this lady made 30 bucks an hour. So I just threw one hour of her life out. So she spent one hour of her life to get that one item. Here's a complete and total stranger throwing it in a dumpster. And the value that we leave behind in life is the value um, that we place from the knowledge that we've gained into the relationships that we have. And that's leaving a legacy. You know, Because people are going to take your house. People are going to take your cars. But your children are going to carry on your legacy of who you were. Who your family is, and that is actually changing the world, is leaving someone behind with knowledge that has been gained and passed along, and then you know grown exponentially as it's been passed from generation to generation. I think people have lost sight of that because we're always in the pursuit of stuff. Yeah, very
0: well said. And similar to what you were saying there, my parents passed away before I had my kids, before I you know got married, my early twenties there, and when I was going through some of their stuff, like they used to always have the worry about the, the bills, the credit cards, they used to stress so much in my life. And I remember when they were, when they died and we were going through this stuff, it was like all of it was there and none of it mattered. Like it was like, wow, this is the stuff they worried so much about. And here it is. And it's like, nobody cares about it anymore. Like it really, it's, it's so all that focus and time and energy put into that really, it seemed like it was so worthless to me at, at that moment when, you know, when I was going through that.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I always, I always use the example that, you could take Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett's laying on his deathbed and and and, and he has, you know, more resources than he could ever spend and, and for the rest of his life. And, you know, just to put in perspective, a billion is a thousand millions. Right. So if he's worth you know, 25 billion, twenty five billions worth 25,000 millions. And but I guarantee you in those last moments of his life, if you rolled up to him and you're a, a genie and you said, Warren, I'm going to give you five hours of life back, you're going to be 40 years old. But in exchange, you're going to give me everything that you've ever acquired on this earth. And in those last moments, I guarantee you that any human being, as they're facing the last moments of their life, everything comes into perspective. And I don't want to be that individual that lives life with regret. And I look over and I'm like, just give me the keys to my Porsche so I can hold them one more time.
0: You know, and and
1: I'm not not knocking things, but I'm knocking the pursuit of things Um, because life is about relationships and it's about people and it it's the lessons that we learn and that we can teach the young ones in our life that really does make the world a better place it really does
0: yeah yeah well said yeah people will say to me like you know i can't have that many kids they're too expensive they cost too much and i'll say if you think kids cost too much wait till you get the bill for not having them when you're 50 60 years old because it's very costly to the people that, that i know uh, that look back with those regrets and they're tough. Now you have four kids like me from my wife and I going from, uh, two kids to three was the most challenging by far for us. So, uh, what was the, what was the hardest transition for you as far as number of kids?
1: Well, it's interesting because. You know, you have, it's funny. You have the, you have the different personalities, you know, you have the hero of the family, you know, the super athlete, the, then you have a little one that's just tough because she's just being beat on by all the other ones and everything's taken away and it's just like it's really funny to see that but like i remember we were talking about um our youngest and how uh, i guess our oldest of how like every time she'd do anything we'd take a picture you know oh like one month like a sticker and we'd hold her up and then and the next one came we started missing the photos you know one sticker here or there you know and then the other ones i don't even know if we even had birthdays anymore we just just, yeah then the other one they're just alive they're just there and and so it's it's really funny how um you 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 become a tribe and you get out of that baby stage and now it's management of personalities uh before it was like you're caring for them so much and you're just, you know, you're wiping butts, you're doing diapers, they are puking, they're doing this, they're pooping in the crib, they're pushing the poop into the doll's eyeballs, they're rubbing it on the spindles. They do that a couple of days in a row. You hit a low point, you know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then all of a sudden now it's personalities where, you know, you got the wise guy, you got the hero running around, you got the tough kid, you got the little girl that wants to knock people out, you know, and uh, so now it's it's transition. So for me, the transition has been great. Because I'm not, by nature, a nurturer. Like, I'm not a nurturer. I'm just, I wasn't raised like that. I had a very unique, you know, upbringing myself. My wife was super nurtured. I mean, she was like, you know, she could just write a book called Nurture Everything. (laughs) And, uh, And I'm totally the opposite. But I'm really good at managing personalities. And so now that the kids can talk and we're all having meals together, running around, everyone's got their things they're doing. I just absolutely I love it. We sit down, we have our meals together. And so that transition has been really a transition from her um, kind of like taking charge. Cause I'm like, you know, what do I do? Um, you know, it won't stop crying. Like I need help. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the shushing and the what, you know, and to where now I'm like really the leader of the tribe of all these little people with all these little voices. So that's been the biggest transition for us.
0: Yeah, and I would say what you said there is important, too, because you have one that's the nurturer, one's the more of the uh, stern side of it. And I think that what we have in our country is like a real fatherless crisis where so many kids are growing up without a father figure in their life. And when you don't have both sides of the coin, and it really doesn't matter who plays which side, if it's the mom or the dad, but to not have those both sides, I think that's wreaking havoc on our societies everywhere.
1: Yeah, and one thing I see too is I see a lot of um, you know running this organization. I'm around a lot of wealthy people, and a lot of times you hear their stories that they came from poverty. Um, you know, they they came from really you know meager beginnings. Um, I mean, just you hear these stories, and then they become successful, and then they do a total knee-jerk reaction, right? So they just shower their kids in gifts, right? Shower them with whatever they want, and they create monsters, and they think that they're helping them, but they're actually harming those kids and so um you know for me i was never you know i didn't grow up where you know your family always like you know worshipped everything you ever did as a matter of fact that you never were really told good job or anything like that so i had to be really careful that you know my kid doesn't like you know pick a stick off off the ground i'm like oh man you're the best like whoo like best kid ever like where i had to find out like okay hey I like that about myself because I'm my own champion. Like I, I never needed anyone to clap for me and anyone to cheer for me. I, I learned to cheer for myself and be very independent. And, um, you know, uh, other people, if no one's looking, they can't do anything. And they're always looking for a reaffirmation and stuff. So I think that as parents like today – a lot of people are successful the economy is good people are doing well and they're taking their child's opportunity to learn about themselves which is is really only found through struggle you look at every single natural creature you look at you know golden eagles you look at you know wild sheep you look at it's always the same thing there's always this watershed moment where the the, the 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 small animal always has to take the risk themselves. They have to learn to fly. Some of them hit the rocks, you know, but what happens is if they stay there, they're going to eventually die anyway. So there has to be that moment. And we want to shield our kids from those things. And I'm not saying actually pushing your kid out of the nest, but they have to learn how to struggle and find their own footing. And our job is to provide tools so that when those moments come, they know how to deal with them. and, And those lessons become authentic to that individual, that child. And we are so... So many people I see shield their kids and they or they just let them be totally influenced by technology, like completely and totally. We'll go with our friends. My kids don't have iPads. Um, They don't hang out. We don't really watch a lot of TV like, yeah, we'll watch some shows here or there whatever. They're pretty much when sometimes kids come out to my house, my kids just want to be outside. Hanging out on the wild pony, jumping on the sheep, like doing whatever. They want to be outside doing stuff. And the other kids, they just want to sit inside and just be on these devices. And then it's really interesting to see the difference in the way their personalities are developing and the way that they're able to face things. Um, because there is a form of absent parentry where, where it's like you want something to do, so you just give them something else. We don't realize how influenced they are. And then we see the byproducts and we blame the kid. We say, ah, the kid's crazy, he's this, he's that, he's got these things, when we're actually, you know, absent, in my humble opinion.
0: Dads, are you tired of taking supplements that never deliver? Well, Redcon One was created to ensure that you get real hardcore products that deliver real results. Trusted by four-time world's strongest man, Brian Shaw, and founded by supplement entrepreneur, Aaron Singerman, Redcon 1 is crushing the industry. You have to try their MRE bars, which are packed full of nutritious food sources that will replenish your system when you need it most. And they taste so good, your toddler will think they're eating a candy bar. But we're talking whole food meal replacement. And right now, First Class Fatherhood listeners can save 20% on their entire order from Redcon 1. Simply use the promo code FATHER at the checkout. So let's go, dads. For the highest state of readiness, choose Redcon 1. Visit Redcon1.com, use the promo code FATHER, and save 20%. Yeah. And, and you know, what else we see a lot of, too, is like uh, my father had me when he was 50 years old. So he was born in 1930. So his discipline style is much different than mine was. Now, I I wasn't beaten, but I mean, I was smacked around as a kid. And it's like as a dad myself, uh, I find myself looking at like, man, I I can't I can't find myself doing it now. I'll spank my kids up until they're a certain age. And then I feel like once you can communicate with them, um, it's not necessary. So uh, what what, what type of disciplinarian or who is the bigger disciplinarian uh, in your family?
1: Uh, I would say my wife and I definitely do it in a partnership, but I'm I would def, I would one hundred percent say I'm the uh, authoritarian in the family. Um, but I always use the example that a leader doesn't demand respect. I, I don't demand respect from my kids. I command it by who I am and the example I set. Now they know. Um, you know, listen. I spank my kids one hundred percent, but that's not my first go to right there's always a lever of severity so like when i'm breaking a horse for instance on sunday this sunday i'll leave four o'clock in the morning drive out with my guys 15 hours gather up wild horses never been touched bring them back we're gonna break them and then we'll use them in my program in in june and by by by, by using pressure and release you help that animal just like people formulate their own ideas about what is right so that they believe in it and it lasts when you go away And so I always have a level of severity. So as firm as necessary So for instance, if I tell you to do something, you know, it's one time Right. So I'm only gonna say it one time you know, go outside and bring the wood in stack it by the wood stove Okay, my son drifts off. He's outside like beating a cat with a stick or whatever he's doing I come in. It's not John. There's no negotiation He's got to get. He drops down. He gets in the push-up position, all right, He and he stays there. So you know, and I when I say stays there, you know, he's there. They're getting so strong, my kids, that which means they make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> they can stay in that position for 15 minutes without. I mean, that's how strong they're getting. And so, but they'll drop down. They'll stay in that position. No talking. Perfect plank position. They'll stay there, and and then they get up and then they go about their business. Well, now. They know it's just one time because I don't. I don't yell. I don't scream. I just. I'm very. I'm just firm as necessary. You don't do this. You get this. You know. You punch your brother, or your brother punches you, or whatever. Well, okay. Then there's the next level of severity. Um, one thing that we do in our house, and I've got unconventional methods, is we have a a big hill outside my house, and we have a pile of rocks. And if we are having a issue and it warrants it, then you have to carry one rock and place it on top of the hill come back down and when they come back down from the hill it's a big it's a small mountain they come back down and they're very tired and then then it's over that's it and they learned a lesson we always discuss the lesson and what we can learn so there always has to be a recourse there always has to be a cause and effect and what happens is a lot of times you'll say knock it off i said quit it this is the last time if you do that again i'm warning you watch it and it's just like these horses, right? So I may say, look at you're gonna kick at me, all right. You may try to they may try to strike me, right? And okay, well, there's gonna be an effect. But if I if I back up and I don't actually respond to that, then the next time the horse comes around the round pen, he's gonna say, huh, oh, okay, I'm gonna push a little further. And the children are the same exact way. Like I've just learned so much about being a follower from working with especially with wild horses, is it's really the same principles. And the old way was force. Fear and repetition. You forced them. They didn't want to do it. It was repetition. You know, my dad was, you know, very firm, had a very tough upbringing. Um, you know, grandfather was a real tough guy. And, uh, you know, had been in prison. And, you know, so he only had that example. And back in the day, it was the beat and release program. You know, you basically you know, like the neighbors would beat you. You know, you'd you be over there doing something. It was that was just how it was where I grew up. The neighbors would see you grab you by the ear, whack you on the can. And like it was just it was normal. And um, but now but I was never I always operated out of fear. I was afraid of being in trouble. But I feel that the way that I teach my kids is this kind of cause and effect. And then we always discuss the outcome. But they have to pay the man. They got to pay the man. Another thing we do is uh, we hold a log over our head. So the, we have pieces of wood, and they'll stand there. And if they don't meet the time, which they always do, but if they don't meet the time, um, then there's a, the next byproduct. you know. And we have the same thing. We take sweets away. We do all these things, and we always discuss it. And people may say, like, man, I can't believe you got your kids like walking up down that hill with a rock. And I said, well, it's a lot better than teaching them now than when they're 16, and you can take a swing at me, Right. Um, because he never learned that respect because every time he took a swat at me, I backed off and, and I didn't follow up on the things I said. And because you have to train them, you have to train them, but you can't force them. And you got to let their decisions, even if they're going to be wrong, I let them make a wrong decision. I will purposely allow them to, to run into that limit and make the decision. And if it's wrong, it's a good lesson, but there's always got to be a byproduct and it's only as firm and as fair as necessary. And that's kind of our approach. And, you know, my wife, you know, we support each other. Um, you know, we have a different kind of method. We all use the push-up method, which is very successful. A lot of times they come to my house, we'll be eating dinner, there'll be two kids down because if you interrupt, <laughs> some, if you interrupt somebody, you have to do five push push-ups and then one for the Navy, no matter what, I don't care where we are. We'll be able to eat at, you know, a restaurant. My kid starts chiming in, talking over everybody, just look at them. I just look at him. and say, drop. And they just go down, just knock around. People are like looking at them. Because it doesn't matter where you are. The training never ends. The training is always continual. And I'll tell you what, not that I have it all figured out, but that works. It just works. It works on horses and it works on kids. And number one, they're getting in hell of a shape. My kids are strong because they make a lot of mistakes. But you get to carry a rock up and down the hill three or four times in a day. And then you're put knocking out push-ups. Maybe you get 30 or 40 in a day. You're six. My kid can hold on to his dirt bike. He's crushing people in wrestling. And you know, it's like they understand, like, they understand that if I do this, I get this, and it it just works. So maybe uh, you know, people are gonna all the all the crazies are gonna be, you know, talking about what Oprah said and I'm screwing my kids up or this and that, but um, I don't really care. It's 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 the way that I've learned and it's it's the lessons that I've learned that I'm able to take and reshape and apply to who I am today and and help my kids be a better version of themselves.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine, uh, Micah, that it would be just a benefit to them all the way around. It'll be cool when they're older to hear them stories about when they were growing up, about what they had to do. So that'll be pretty cool. But I, I, I love the analogies that you have with the wild horses. Now, part of my misspent youth growing up was I, I grew up at Meadowlands Racetrack Aqueduct. I was, uh, you know, I was gambling on horses, so very interested at a young age. What kind of got you um, into the horses, and what was the genesis of the horses and heroes?
1: You know, so for me, like coming home from, from a career, you know, a pretty intense special operations career um, was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I didn't really know how to be home. I didn't know how to be a, you know, a real dad. I, I you know, I, everybody was kind of my recruits and uh, you know, I, I, I had to kind of put my life back together. And so I ended up uh, meeting some cowboys with horses living out here in Montana and I started shooing for them, you know, I started horseshoeing and terrible. what. Well, listen, you can make a lot of money doing it, but it's a terrible job. And, uh, (laughs) I always tell people when I'm shooting, I just got kicked. I'm like, you know, why did I learn this? Why did I learn this? I should have never learned this, but, uh, yeah. And, and I started, uh, you know, this guy would buy these bad horses from, you know, we call it the canner. So they're basically horses that are, you know, no good. And, or people get rid of and sell at a loose sale and then they'll take them up and they'll go you know through this process and wind up on somebody's dinner plate in Canada or whatever and this guy would buy them and he'd bring them down the real good looking horses and they didn't just wind up there because they were great and we would break them and we would resell them and he'd make money on them and so I was always getting on these horses and I was getting bucked off like all the time I've been kicked I've been stomped I've been struck I've I've been smashing the trees, I've been run away, I got dragged by a horse. Like, um, so I really like wanted to just dominate these animals because at the time I was the type of person like if you wanted to fight with me, like you like I would fight with you. Like I just was had a propensity for that. That was who I was, you know. So like the more the horse wanted to fight. You know, the more I would get up and want to, you know, dominate them, and these old cowboys loved it. You know, I, you know, it was just one wreck after the next. And some some mentors came alongside me and were like, "Hey, there's a better way," you know. And uh, and I started learning the fundamentals of horsemanship, and through the fundamentals of horsemanship, I started really learning about myself. I started realizing that I was the cause of all my problems. It wasn't war, it wasn't the teams, it wasn't contracting, that I had really created the world that I was living in by by choices that were made out of fear. I was afraid to not be who I was anymore. So in some strange way, I was holding on to that. And when I began to change my perspective, the way that I handled horses began to change. And it was the challenges and struggles that I faced through the horses learning about myself that ultimately led me to creating heroes and horses. So I brought some friends out and uh, one was a team guy, one was special forces guy that I knew. And this guy hadn't come out of his house in six months. He was a very dark place. Like, um, you know, I've, I've said before and some other things I've done, like I remember thinking like, like I might have to like, I don't know. I might have to do something. Like he was out there, you know, Would sit in the tent and he'd just pull his gun out. I you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, 20 miles from the closest dirt road. And he would just be like, you know, spinning the, you know, and we're just sitting in there like around a campfire, like in the middle with the horses out, you know, and he's just like, man, like they're coming, you know, I'm like, like, <sighs> yeah. And, and, but through that process, like he changed, it changes and transformed his life completely. We did it again. I launched the program today. Uh, what it is 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 a forty day long reintegration program for combat vets it 's forty days straight there 's no days off it 's whole food eating there 's no dairy there 's no cheese there 's no honey there 's no milk there 's no bread it 's water and black coffee and meat and vegetables. The average guy loses eighteen pounds They ride around five hundred miles in the program every day starts at four o 'clock in the morning with physical fitness they 'll read two books they 'll go through our leadership course you know they 'll spend twenty four days in the back country they 'll They'll learn to shoe horses, and it is the most intense. Some of the guys that have come through this program, you know, even special ops guys, say that's some of the hardest things they've ever done their entire life, and a lot of guys say it's the hardest thing they've ever done because the hardest thing you'll ever do is learn about yourself, and it's actually the challenges in life that teach us about who we are, and I lived that process, and I really didn't know at the time what I was looking at uh, because at the end of the day, I was, I was, uh, I was afraid. You know, I don't run around playing Joe military. I'm not like wearing, you know, camouflage pants and telling everybody, like, think the government's like, Iran's cracking off, brother. They're going to need me back. Like, (laughs) I'm like, okay, dude, you can't even like walk upstairs without getting out of breath. Like, nobody wants you back. But we create this like pseudo world connecting the dots backwards in our life because we have this historical data to support what we've done. So we try to bring that forward with us and try to create this new life. When the best way to create a future is to create the future and you're creating a future out of the past. And that's what, that's what guys become disenfranchised. And so, you know, it was, uh, it was through this process of working with horses that I learned about who I was and I, and I realized, look at, I didn't set out and like to start some nonprofit. I'm not like, you know, that wasn't like my goal in life. I, you know, I, I did it because I was really saving myself and I realized how powerful, Um, a medium the horses are they teach you about yourself so wild horses um, most people may not know there's about 60,000 in captivity and maybe 125,000 roaming free and wild horses um, which is kind of debatable but they're actually brought here by the Spanish and then they bred with British horses and they formed you know a breed and they're not really indigenous to here Um, there is on the fossil record horses that were like two feet tall and they had eight hooves and uh that's what they found here so people are like well there was horses here but what's happened is all these horses which are really feral horses are destroying the rangeland so two percent of the nation which 75% of that's in the west produces food for the other ninety eight percent and the horses are destroying land they eat they eat the grass down it's created dust bull, massive dust bowls in Nevada and Utah and Montana so these horses have never been handled by people. They're like bobcats. They, you know, they kill each other out there. They're not the graceful creatures that we see in the black beauty or spirit or whatever. Like these horses will eat your lunch. Okay? <laughs> they, will, they, got a, they got black belts in horse jujitsu. jitsu okay? So it's a perfect match to take a wild veteran and take a wild horse and match those two together. Um, because they're both missing the key thing that every human being needs in life and that's purpose and it's ultimately purpose that allows us to overcome our external circumstances but to find that you got to overcome fear labels violence all these things that we've adapted and so that's how i you know started using wild horses because the horse is an honest creature horse is not a smart creature a horse is a dumb creature okay Horse is the only animal that will run himself into a V of a tree and hang himself when all he has to do is kind of lift his head up and get out. You know, a horse is the kind of animal where you take him out and the gates open and he runs up and down yelling for his buddy and the gates open next to him on the left. Uh, You know, a horse is the only one that will fight and jump over the fence and hurt himself to get over the fence to see his buddy and then fight with his buddy and break his leg and end up dying. All right, so, but instinctually... A horse is highly intelligent, highly evolved. So they sense everything you're thinking and feeling. And that's why they work with people, is because a horse is designed to stay away from you and me because our eyes are in the front of our heads. All predators' eyes are on the fronts of their heads. And the horse's eyes are on the sides of their heads. You know, so they see monocular and binocular vision. They see independently. So whatever horse sees on the left side, He has no idea. So he could be watching Frozen on the left side and on the right side, you know, he's watching Red Heat with, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the brain has no idea that one side's watching the movie and the other side's watching the other movie. No idea. So they to get to the point where you can get on their back and ride them and have this connection with them, you have to build trust, and that trust only comes through the experience of pressure and release uh and developing a relationship with the uh, you know through the horse human connection we call it so in a nutshell, um horses are I would say that I wouldn't be well, I don't really know, but i I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for them in my life. And uh, I had to eat, eat a lot of humble pie along the way. And I had to really climb my own mountains and and face my own failures, my own fears and my own insecurities. And, you know, through doing that, I I've become a better person and I'll continue on that journey for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, Mike. And it's great to see I know that, unfortunately, there's such a uh, you know alarming numbers that we see with the suicide rates with veterans. And so it's awesome that there's so many different programs out there by veterans for veterans now, uh, which is what you're doing. So it's so cool. And uh, just to rein this back into you as a father, and the last thing I'm going to hit you with here, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new father or for that about-to-be dad who's out there listening?
1: Well, first of all, I guess I'll use the Kenny Chesney song like don't blink don't blink I I, you know last night I sat at the dinner table as a matter of fact I look at my youngest daughter Nora and I delivered her at my house by myself with my wife wow Uh, I delivered her at home and you know we had gone through it and and I was a special ops medic so you know whatever I figured I could get in there and uh, (laughs) we uh you know, we wanted to do something together. We want to have this experience. I always tell people like, how was it? I'm like, I delivered the baby cord was around the neck, popped it off, you know? Um, and then, you know, we made raviolis and, uh, and that's what we did. And it was amazing. And the baby never even got a bath for the first couple of days. And it was, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I remember, I remember crying, like holding her and, and being the one to see her and hold her when she was born and being able to deliver and doing it in my own house and my living in my you know bedroom. And the kids were downstairs watching a movie with my oldest. And, um, you know, here we are having this baby and, and then you think those baby years are never going to end. You're like, like, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just a lot. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I'm sitting there and she'll be, you know, coming five this summer And I looked at her, and I just missed those days, and I thought they would, like, never end. So um, don't be afraid to make a mistake. Children are super forgiving. There is no perfect. There really is no perfect. There is you taking – I always tell people, I'm like, you're winning if you can do just a little bit better than what you were taught. You're on the winning track. So, um, And don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't beat yourself up. You know, we're all scared. We're going to screw our kids up. You know, we're reading Oprah stuff. We're on there. You know, we're going to do like the kids, like whatever. Like, and you will, you will. And then your kids will sit around and they'll have a beer and be like, yeah, my dad used to do this to me all the time, but now I'm going to do this. And then the next generation, that kid will be like, well, my dad used to do this. And, uh, just enjoy every single moment. Put your family first. Um, because it does go by so quick i mean i just turned 40 this year and i think wow my life is half over and the first quarter of my life i was pooping in my own pants and peeing in my pants and i don't even remember it so i mean like take advantage of the time that you have with these little ones and uh and don't beat yourself up it's uh it's the greatest journey and in the end you'll thank yourself for doing it
0: yeah very well said i love the message this has been an honor for me. I got to say, Mike, Fink, you are a first-class father all the way. And thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time on First Class Fatherhood.
1: Hey, man, thanks for what you do. I appreciate you having me, brother. Take care.
0: Back to wrap things up here on First Class Fatherhood. I got to give a special thank you once again to Micah Fink for giving me a few minutes of his time here. That was such an honor. Please hit me up on Twitter, guys, and drop me a DM on Instagram. Let me know what you thought about today's episode. I always love to read your feedback. Make sure you guys are following me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace because I have got a major guest announcement that I will be dropping on you guys next week. I'm going to make it on Instagram first. I also got a couple of bangers coming your way next week, so lock it into First Class Fatherhood. That's all I got for you guys today. Enjoy your three-day week weekend i'm alec lace you have been listening to first class fatherhood and please remember guys we are not babysitters we are fathers and we're not just fathers we are first class fathers